Welcome to the See Me Now podcast special edition, where we interview some of the most interesting people in Western Colorado. I'm Kelsey Coleman, and this is my co-host, David Ludlam. Today, we speak with Colorado Mesa University's Dr. Aparna Palmer, who is both an administrator and passionate professor here at CMU. Dr. Palmer, thanks for being with us today. And I wanted to kick off the conversation uh, asking you why you recently joined uh, a host of other faculty members in reciting uh, the Bill of Rights. I think it was on the National Bill of Rights Day, and that, that meant something to you. Uh, what did it mean to you, and why did you participate in that project? I think I was really excited to participate in that project because I believe in our country. I'm really grateful to be here, and I know that this country isn't perfect, but it gives our citizens so much, and I wanted to celebrate the document or documents that really kicked that off for us as a nation. Well, and, and you said that you're, you're grateful to be here, and we were talking before about the fact that your family has an immigration story, as, as millions of others do, but it's, it's unique, I think, and interesting, and it's something we wanted to talk about today. Could you talk a little bit about India, which is where you're from, and, and for people that don't know anything about uh, India, what part of the country you're from and what's unique about it, and share, paint us a picture of, of where your family's from. So I am from South India. Um, India is is a nation that has a lot of people and yet really is about the third of the size of the United States. And so if you can imagine a lot of people in that area, you can start to imagine what it feels like to step into um, a city in India. And the city that I'm from is Bangalore, India, which is called the Software City of India. Um, South India is warm. Um, it has mild winters. And um, in general, if you want to cool off in the summers, which are quite hot, you would go to what are known as hill stations, which are these areas in more of the mountainous regions of South India, where the temperatures are much cooler, where there are cloud forests that you can kind of experience. But for most, most of my life, um, when I lived in India, I really lived in lower elevations where it was warm and humid, lots and lots of people, um, lots and lots of culture, many different religions, many different types of people, all kind of sharing the same space. And remember that India has about 5,000 years of history, and so you can see that as you walk along the streets. Not only can you see modern buildings there, you can see some of the most ancient human structures um, that are present right next door. Uh, when you walk down a street, not only can you see the most modern automobiles, you can still see people pulling bullock carts and riding horses right alongside the traffic. And it has these huge traffic circles where you can see animals and you can see people, anything from elephants to buses to uh, small cars to scooters to motorcycles, all sort of kind of engaging with one another. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm, you're painting this picture perfectly because I'm really imagining the scene. And what was it, what was it like kind of living in this place where it was an old world but new world, this whole mix, you know, and growing up with that? Well, even when I was in India, um, I loved it. 
I really, really enjoyed and and felt immersed in that culture. Even as a young child, I would read all of these ancient stories and really enjoy kind of thinking about the history of India. And the history of India is so complex because it is really the history of migration. We have had over the thousands of years that that land has existed, lots and lots of people come in, build kingdoms, conquer kingdoms, change them. And today's India is still a remnant of all of the kingdoms that are still there. And that's why when you cross a state line, you're really crossing into um, a state that could speak an entirely different language, have an entirely different culture, entirely different foods. And I just remember just loving it and being immersed in that. Dr. Palma, you're you're, I think, sharing with us that India is not a homogenous place culturally, but I also know it's not homogenous socioeconomically. Um, I think the movie Slumdog Millionaire brought into pop culture this idea that there's also this this contrast between the rich and the poor. There's a lot of poverty in India. I think people know that. Could you talk a little bit about what that's like? I, I think especially with people living in the U.S. who may not be familiar with what, with what let's just say, air quotes, true poverty might might look like or feel like. So I I think, you know, for most people who travel from the United States to India, it can be quite shocking. Um, I think what they really love about India is how much color and how much variety and how much action there is on the street. Um, Lots of people moving around, lots of things that are happening. But I think probably that they're shocked at how many people really don't live in permanent housing, how many people live in slums rather than um, a place where they could have a roof that was permanent, that they could call their own. Um, I think that, like you said, there is a lot of variation there. We see people who are very, very wealthy there who live in amazing palatial houses or in apartments um, in skyscrapers. But we also see people on the other end who really may be living under a tree, um, who may be scraping by because they live at a traffic circle. And when the traffic circle uh, comes to a halt, when the policeman stops all of the different um, flows of traffic, they see these people rush onto the traffic and ask for anything that anyone can offer. Um, we see some of that in the United States, but not n- nearly as much as you would see in India. Um, we see children who really can't afford to go to school, who maybe live their entire lives at a traffic circle, hoping that they get enough food to eat um, by the end of the day. We also see a lot of generosity. I think Indians are among the most friendly and generous people on earth. And so I know that along with a lot of poverty that's out there, there are a lot of really, really generous people who are out there every day trying to help people live a better life. Do you think growing up with that and and seeing that level of poverty has shaped you in your adult life? Yeah, I think so. I I really think that seeing, um, you know, that level of poverty and also seeing human suffering on on such a large scale makes you feel like it is your responsibility to help human beings. That in your life, no matter what your career is, 
it is your responsibility to help either in a small way or a large way. I'm really lucky because I am a teacher. And I think um, as a teacher or someone who works in education, you get to help someone every single day of your life. I think it also makes you feel really grateful if you have a home that you can go to, if you have a steady source of income. Um, I feel like, you know, it's something to be really grateful for. You may not have everything that you need in your life, but those are some of the basic things that can really get you through. Even just having enough food to have a dinner is so important. It is so important, and I, that word gratefulness is, is one that um, I can imagine you would have, having experienced that. And going back to what Kelsey mentioned earlier about the beautiful picture you're painting of India, um, it, it's, a, it's a culturally rich place. It's a beautiful country. It's one that's grown in, in wealth and, um, and education recently. But what, what, what were the variables that inspired your family to, to immigrate to the, uh, to the U.S., from, to leave their home? I mean, it's such a, it's such a big move and such a, a disruptive move for a family. What, 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 caused, what not caused it, but what were the variables that led to your immigration story beginning? So I think, you know, India of the 1970s is uh, really the background for when my parents decided that they really wanted a different life. At that point, um, my parents both had bachelor's degrees. My mother had a bachelor's degree by the time she was 18 years old. At 19, she got married. At 20, she had me. And at 23, she had my sister. And when she tried to go get a job after having my sister, she was told that she couldn't because she had children and she was too old. My father was trained as an engineer. Um, he was working at a factory every day, but there was no opportunity for advancement. There was a sense that they both had that even if he worked himself harder and harder and harder, he would never be able to get ahead. And I think collectively they thought that they wanted to live in a country where they could get ahead by working harder. They could have opportunities that perhaps that they, they would never have in India because they would never be able to have the level of income that would give them and their children the opportunities that they wanted. And the most important opportunity that they wanted to give their children was a chance to be educated. And so essentially it's, you know, it's that American dream, right, that we've heard time and time again is, you know, this country is really unique in that sense and that you can come here and build yourself and keep growing and learning. And, and yeah, these opportunities are there. And so how old were you when that, when that happened? So um, I was eight when we finally got to come to the United States, but the journey for my parents was um, about one and a half to two years. So coming to the United States from India is not very easy. And at that point, it took about one to two years that involved applications, it involved interviews. And finally, my father was granted the chance to come to the United States. He, he was allowed to bring about $50. And so he landed in the U.S. He actually landed in Denver with $50. And um, he had to basically build a life in a few months so that my mother and I and my sister could come over. 
couple questions for you. What year is this when he's landing in Denver? So it's um, 1977, 1978, around and, that time. And why why the $50? Do you know, like, why was that the number? So they limited the amount of cash that you could bring in to the United States. And so they limited him to about $50. And um, he also brought a couple of shawls that he could sell here so that he could have a little bit more money. He also had a sponsor. um, So the sponsor was there to basically kind of make sure that he had some sort of security in terms of having at least one person to look after him. But essentially, he was on his own. So Dr. Palmer, we've been talking about your family's immigration journey, but we haven't yet talked about your family. And when you mentioned that your your father landed in Denver with just $50 in his pocket, and he parlayed that into a life, he must have been a pretty remarkable man. And I wonder if you... Uh, might be willing to talk about him. I know before the show you mentioned that he recently passed away, and I, I'm sorry for your loss, but I'd love to hear about the attributes that, that he brought to the country. So I think when I think about my dad, I always think of the term determined. Um, he was so determined to get what he felt was what he wanted out of his life, and he just never let anything stop him. He really, really dreamed big, He really never focused on obstacles. He always focused on what he could do to overcome obstacles. And I think that's what really led him here. And he also just always thought outside of the box. He never thought like anyone else I knew. When I would show him something, he would always notice something that I had never noticed about whatever we were looking at. And I think because he thought differently, um, I think that's what made him think, you know what, I can, I can build this life in the United States. I can do this, you know, in his early 30s. And here you are the vice president at a university. That's a, that's a cool story. <laughs> yes. Um, and so he, you know, he's in Denver. He has his $50. He's, you know, working to, to get enough money to get you, your sister, and your mother to the U.S., correct? Yes. And... What what was that time period between when you, like, what were you doing? Like, what were you thinking, you know, back in India and your dad's gone and he's in this new country? What was going through your head at that time as a little young girl? Well, I mean, I remember it as a very exciting time because I remember it as a hopeful time. I thought, oh, gosh, my my dad is in America. Um, in, in India, we call the United States America. And um, I thought, gosh, maybe we'll, we will get to go to America someday. Um, but we had a pretty normal life. My mom kept it very normal. What I didn't realize at that point was that we were living off of her savings. So my parents had saved so that she could live um, with, with us completely off of money that they had saved. And whenever she needed money, she would sell off something that we owned. And I remember kind of some painful memories because what I loved the most when I was little were my books. And I'm still a person who loves books. And I remember towards the end there, she sold some of my books. Um, And, you know, that was just to kind of clear out things as we were kind of getting ready to go. But, um, But really... It, it felt very comfortable to me. My grandparents lived just around the corner. My aunt and uncle lived around the corner. And so it was just an exciting time for me. You mentioned earlier that 
in India, the United States is called America. Um, is that with fondness or how, how is America or how was America then perceived? And is that tied back to that sort of land of promise or the American dream that people talk about? How, how was that? I, I think, you know, um, when I think about the people that I hung around with, um, America is viewed in a very positive light and it is viewed as a land of opportunity. I know that that is not the view that is shared by every Indian, but certainly um, Americans are welcomed in India. And I I really feel like um, there's such a positive, positive outlook towards the United States, both then and now. Well, how about when you arrived, uh, you joined a minority status in the country and you went to school and I imagine you didn't fit in perfectly, say. What was that like for you as a young girl to, to be living in two cultures and to, to be Indian in America? And what, describe what that experience was like at that age. Uh, it was shocking. Um, I, I really, I, I, it was so different for me. I mean, everything was different. I had never even seen a screen door before. I thought it was really weird that Americans had two doors that they used to enter their homes. I'd never seen a screen on a window before. Um, I, I really had never seen what an American school looked like. Um, in my school, you were ordered um, according to your rank in the class. And so you knew who had the highest grades in the class, who had the second highest grades in the class, and so on. In the United States, you sat, you know, in somewhat of a sort of a random distribution, and you had times where you were creative. And I I didn't really have that experience in India. You know, a lot of times in the last three months, say, we've been talking about race in our country, and and that extends to ethnicity. And was your ethnicity ever an issue for you in, as you were assimilating into the culture and attending school? And was that part of your experience? I mean, I think whenever you come from a different country, when you come from a different culture and you are just different, I think there's always an issue about people understanding who you are and you understanding them and understanding how to interact with that culture. And so there was a lot to learn. Uh, definitely a lot of misunderstandings um, occurred. And I think uh, some of the most stressful times when I was growing up is when the United States decided to go to war in the Middle East. Um, I would have students who assumed I was from the Middle East and um, would have some really harsh comments for me, uh, not realizing that India was not necessarily in the Middle East. But otherwise, it was a really good experience getting to know everyone. And I think it solidified for me most when I found my best friend. And I found her when I was about 14 years old. So, Tell us a little bit, a little bit about that. You know, I mean, growing up, you know, you're, th- these relationships that you make are, are everything, you know. And so going through... Um, school in this new world that you're living in and then actually, you know, finding that first person that you can really connect with on a different level. What was her name? What was she like? Well, her name is Angie Pierman. Um, she, she's this amazing person. She was in some of my classes. Um, I, you know, 
Not that it mattered, but she is African-American, and there were very few minorities in the high school that I went to, and perhaps I gravitated to her because of that. I don't know, but what I did know is that she was really smart. She was very funny. She dressed beautifully. Uh, she, she just knew all of these things about culture and, and music that I didn't know anything about, and she was just willing to let me in, and she and her family really embraced me, and uh, to this day, we're still best friends. She ended up becoming an engineer. Um, and is a big wig at an engineering company on the Front Range. Uh, so she's been really successful. So, Dr. Palmer, you mentioned that your best friend uh, was funny, and I think that must be an attribute the two of you share. Maybe it's something you have in common. Um, everybody on campus is always remarking about your infectious laugh and your cheery personality, and I've experienced that myself. But it, is, is cheeriness your natural disposition? Do you, are you always cheery? I think I am cheery. But the cheeriness is deliberate, meaning that I work for it. Um, I, I had a very difficult childhood. Not that I didn't have what I needed to thrive, but I had some hardships nonetheless. And at some point, uh, probably during college, I decided that I really wanted to think about the life that I wanted and who I wanted to be. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be a happy person. And I wanted to live a rich life, rich meaning rich with great experiences and rich with wonderful people and great friends. And so making that decision and working towards those things has made me who I am today. And so when I wake up in the morning, I'm not always cheery, but when I remember what I have, how grateful I am for all of those things, that's when I feel good. And when I step onto campus, I feel like I belong here. And I feel like my life has meaning, um, both here and beyond. And so that's what really fuels that cheeriness. Well, I'm personally glad that you've worked for that cheeriness, because I remember a, a while back, you and I ran into each other, and I was walking around with a kind of dourness and looking down and ran into you, and we had a chat, and your, your laugh and your cheeriness was certainly infectious and, and made my day better. So I'm glad that you've worked hard for that. It makes it enriches our campus community. So oh, thank that. you. And Dr. Palmer, I'm curious about that moment that you had in college. You know, we're on a college campus right now where, you know, thousands and thousands of students come here and they have, you know, these, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I should say epiphanies, but these moments in time where they realize, okay, I, who, who am I now? Who do I want to be? And and how do I get there? And can you kind of describe like that specific moment for you when you said, I need, I need to be happy? Yeah, I, I remember it really clearly. I took a calculus final. I was so scared that I had failed it. Um, my parents had instilled in me this real um, need to always do very well in my classes. I felt that pressure really intensely. And after taking that calculus final, I was so panic-stricken that I just started walking outside, down the street, down the road, and I, w I, I just felt like I was having a panic attack. And I, I really finally called a friend, and he drove in um, from outside of town. He found me at the intersection that I was at. Uh, this is before cell phones, so I had called him on a landline, and I had just started walking. And um, he just 
talked to me and he said, you know, it's okay if you don't get an A in your calculus class. You're going to be fine. You're, you're going to have the life that you want. Um, and I think at that moment I thought, I don't want to be this panic-stricken about a single grade in a single class. I don't want to think that everything is riding on that. And and that's the moment I thought, I need help. I need to live my life differently. Do you think that your parents maybe put that pressure on you because of of their immigration status and wanting more for you more than what they had? And I assume directionally they meant well, but maybe it had a a negative impact on you. Is, Is that... Is that what caused that, do you think? You know, I think I I have to take responsibility for how I responded to their desire for me to do well. And so I don't blame them. However, um, I think a lot of Indian immigrants tell their children that they should be the best in school, that they should get straight A's. And I do think it's because they know what the consequences are of not working hard enough, not trying your best, because they can be dire in India, which is a country where if you're not at the top of the class, you may never get to go to college. I'm thinking to, you know, this, this moment where you said, you know, you, you, you got help. And what, what, what was that? help? Was it a friend? Was it a counselor? You know, I'm thinking your role here at the university, you're constantly there for students, you know, offering a a helping hand, if you will. Can you talk about what that help looked like? Yeah, I think, you know, asking for help is the most important thing. Once I asked for help, the help came in a lot of different forms. It came from my professors who were kind enough to talk to me about how to succeed and how there's no one formula for success. Uh, It came from my friends, from my best friend from childhood, who talked to me and told me that it didn't matter what my grades were, that she would always be my friend, she would always love me and support me no matter what. Uh, It came from my parents, who recognized how much stress I was under, and they sent me supporting messages. But it also came from taking time to reach out to a therapist so that there was someone who could help me handle stress and find a way to deal with difficulties that were more healthy, uh, not, you know, walking down the street aimlessly in a panic but thinking about breathing deeply or writing something down um, or talking to somebody about how you feel about a situation. Uh, those are some things that I, I, I feel like I got at that moment once I decided to ask for help. And having acquired those new, what would you say, like coping skills, I imagine has really allowed you to help students in your current capacity, your current job? I definitely think that, you know, I I think when I see a student who's really troubled and in my current position, sometimes I get to help students who are facing some real hardships. Um, Those are those are some things that come back to me. I think if you go through difficulties yourself and you can come out and feel like you are the hero of your experiences, 
then you can show other people how they can be the hero of their experiences rather than constantly being the victim of their experiences. I like that sentiment. And speaking of the hero of your experiences, going all the way back to your father, in some ways, the way you described him earlier sounds like he is the hero of your American experience and some of your American dreams story. And as we get ready to wrap up the segment, I wonder if you might want to return to him and, and kind of describe a little bit more about maybe that role he played and, and, and what he was willing to do, do or endure and, and how he got from here to there, from that $50 in his pocket to where you sit today, you know, recording this podcast. Uh, Yeah, I want to tell his story, and I also want to tell a little bit about my mom's story because they are both the heroes of my life. You know, after my dad landed here, uh, he got a job at Montgomery Wards, which was a department store that existed um, at that point. And then he got a job at Wendy's. And then um, he applied for a job at a small electronics company, one of those companies that Um, looks after satellite dishes on those huge towers in the West. And in order to get that job, even though he had an engineering degree, they made him build a circuit. And he was able to build that circuit. He was able to get that job. And that was the job that gave him the financial security to bring us over here. And once we were over here, eventually my mom went back to school while I was in college And she got a degree in computer science. So she became a software engineer. And, um, you know, her story of taking care of us alone in India for nearly a year and um, coming over and basically taking care of us, but then being able to work, which was her dream. You know, just like my dad, she wanted to be a really good parent, but she also wanted to contribute as an engineer. Uh, was really, really inspiring to me. Together, I think they really are the heroes of my life. I think it's such a nice sentiment to wrap up the show on, and we really appreciate you being on CMU Now podcast with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Palmer. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for letting me share my story. It was really, really nice to talk with you. Thanks for listening to this and other engaging special editions of CMU Now Special Edition. I'm Kelsey Coleman, and this is my co-host, David Ludlam. We'll see you next time on the CMU Now Special Edition podcast.